You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash crimes, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash crimes to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash crimes. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Last time on Voices for Justice, I left you with me leaving the police station after being told some pretty shocking things about my father and learning that they were executing search warrants on our home right at that moment. In this episode, we will be going over the rest of the day from my point of view, but more so, I will be focusing on the official documents outlining the Phoenix Police Department's reasoning for searching our home, the execution of the search warrant, my father's reaction to it all, and the insane things they found in our home. But before I go into my account of leaving the police station and going home, I want to read what happened before I did. As we discussed in previous episodes, the police had been conducting a full investigation in an attempt to find out what happened to Alyssa. They had taken our trash for analysis, conducted surprise visits to my father, and called in a ton of people for questioning. But with my father refusing to hand over the original runaway note, as well as the video surveillance from the day Alyssa disappeared, the police filed an affidavit in order to obtain the search warrants discussed in the last episode. And that affidavit reads... Your affiant, William Anderson, is a Phoenix Police Department missing persons detective. I have been a police officer with the city of Phoenix since 2000. I have received training in the investigation crimes from the Arizona Law Enforcement Academy, the Phoenix Police Department, as well as such groups as the Arizona Homicide Investigators Association, 
the Department of Justice, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The Phoenix Police Department receives approximately 10,000 missing persons reports a year, and the majority of these cases are resolved within the first few days and months of the initial report. Some of these cases have been resolved as homicides where a body was never recovered and the proof of the crime was discovered through physical and circumstantial evidence. It is believed that this case is a homicide where a body has not been located. On May 17, 2001, at approximately 10.56 p.m., Michael Roy Turney reported his stepdaughter Alyssa Marie Turney as a runaway juvenile from their home. Michael claimed that Alyssa left a note saying that she was running away to California. Alyssa has not been seen or heard from since. It is believed that she is deceased and a victim of foul play. This investigator and the Phoenix Police Department have taken the following steps to make this determination. All known family and friends of Alyssa Turney have been interviewed. None of them have seen or spoken to Alyssa since her disappearance. Alyssa was very close to some of her family and had a steady boyfriend at the time of her disappearance. They do not believe she would have run away without telling them. They are certain there is no possible way she could have gone this long without contacting at least one of them. Alyssa went missing on the last day of her junior year in high school. She was an average student in school and held down a steady part-time job at a nearby jack-in-the-box. She had no history of running away and no criminal record. Friends and family have said that she smoked marijuana but engaged in no other criminal activity. Alyssa led a very low-risk lifestyle and did not affiliate with known criminals. She was described as dependable. Alyssa had made plans to attend the graduation of a friend on the same day she went missing. Extensive searches of various databases have been conducted in an attempt to locate Alyssa Turney. These searches have included variations of her name, including her mother's maiden name and her biological father's name and even the name of a childhood friend who committed suicide in the unlikely event Alyssa adopted her identity. No NCIC inquiries have been made in reference to Alyssa beyond those associated with this investigation. No driver's licenses or state identification cards have been issued to Alyssa. She is not registered as a voter in the United States. No income or credit activity has appeared under her name. When she disappeared, Alyssa left behind $1,860 in her savings account. This was untouched until approximately six months later when her stepfather transferred it to another account. This was revealed via a subpoena of Alyssa and Michael Turney's bank records. There has been extensive media coverage in reference to Alyssa's disappearance, including bulletins on nationally syndicated print and media. She has been profiled on various missing person internet sites, including the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, Project Jason, the North American Missing Person Network, and others. Alyssa's sister Sarah has created a website called HelpFindAlyssa.com. There have been no credible sightings of Alyssa as a result of this publicity. Because of all of this, this investigator believes Alyssa Turney is deceased and likely a victim of foul play. Various unidentified bodies located since Alyssa's disappearance have been forensically compared to her, but none have been Alyssa. Alyssa's DNA profile and dental records have been entered into NCIC and are routinely compared to unidentified remains. As background to this case, it should be noted that Michael Turney is not Alyssa's biological father. Alyssa was born on April 3, 1984, to Stephen Strom and Barbara Farner. Shortly after Alyssa's birth, Barbara left Stephen Strom and married Michael Turney. At that time, Barbara had two children, Alyssa and an older brother, John. Michael Turney had three children from previous marriages, Rhett Turney, Michael Seth Turney, and James Turney. 
Michael adopted all of Barbara's children, and they had one child together, Sarah Turney. Stephen Straw maintained visitation with Alyssa until she was nine years old, when Michael and Barbara would no longer allow him to see her. Stephen moved out of state and no longer had contact with Alyssa. Barbara Farner died of cancer in 1993, and Alyssa was raised by her stepfather until her disappearance. Michael Turney is a former Maricopa County Sheriff's deputy. He worked for that department from 1970 through 1974. He has displayed hostility and paranoia toward the various investigators assigned to this case. He has refused to be formally interviewed by investigators in reference to Alyssa's disappearance. However, he has communicated through fax, mail, and email to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and to the Phoenix Police Department. It is through these communications that this investigator has learned Michael Turney's version of events in reference to Alyssa's disappearance. In a letter to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children dated for May 25, 2001, Michael Turney claims he took her out of school early in order to discuss her summer rules. He took her to lunch and then they went home where they had an argument. Michael claims that he left Alyssa alone in the house between noon and 1 p.m. to go shopping. Michael said he picked up his 12-year-old daughter, Sarah Turney, from a water theme park and returned home at approximately 5 p.m. It should be noted that Michael, Sarah, and Alyssa were the only residents of the home at that time. When they arrived home, they found Alyssa gone with a handwritten note which read, Dad and Sarah, when you dropped me off at school today, I decided that I really am going to California. Sarah, you said you didn't want me around. Look, you got it. I'm gone. That's why I saved my money. Dad, I took $300 from you. Alyssa. Michael also stated that some of her clothing was missing and that she left her house key next to the note. Alyssa's cell phone was also found in her room. In this letter, Michael stated that he had security camera surveillance in his house and checked all eight hours of it and that it showed nothing. When investigators inquired about the security tape of the day of Alyssa's disappearance in 2008, Michael claimed he no longer had it. However, he still had a copy of a security tape which purportedly showed a verbal argument between Alyssa and her boyfriend. He gave a copy of this tape, which he said was from May 6, 2001. It showed two separate camera angles. One was the front entrance of the house near the carport area, and the other was an interior view of the house, possibly the living room. The quality of this tape, though in black and white, was quite good. Michael Turney has referenced the surveillance equipment at his house numerous times in communications with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and the Phoenix Police. When officers visited Michael's new house across the street from the scene of Alyssa's disappearance, they could observe various security cameras inside and outside the house. Interviews with friends and family of Alyssa have shown that Michael Turney would often audio and video record them. Michael has told investigators that he used to conduct surveillance on Alyssa while she worked at Jack in the Box by parking across the street and watching her with binoculars. In this same letter, Michael claimed to have received a phone call from Alyssa between 4 a.m. and 5 a.m. on May 24, 2001. He said this conversation was very short and that she complained about his rules and her life and then hung up. He said this number came from a payphone in Riverside, California. Interviews with the Turney family members have shown that Michael has given inconsistent variations of this account of this conversation. He claimed that it was a hang-up call, a call with Alyssa saying, Dad? Dad? Or a call he never answered but found a California number on his caller ID. It is unknown why there are such inconsistencies in Michael's account of this phone call. Sarah Turney revealed that the Turney home phone has a device which automatically records phone conversations. 
Michael Roy Turney reportedly does this to document evidence in a variety of lawsuits he has filed. It is unknown if there is a recording of this reported call from Alyssa. In communications with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and the Phoenix Police, Michael Turney has shown a propensity to retain documents from long ago. He has sent copies of documents over 20 years old, and family members have stated that he keeps everything. Michael Turney has exhibited an apparent obsession with his stepdaughter Alyssa. He admitted to conducting surveillance on her at work, using binoculars to spy on her. He would often drive her to school and then pick her up. He would record Alyssa via audio and video recording. Various family members have stated that Michael treated Alyssa differently from the other children and gave her inordinate attention. Michael Turney told investigators that he suffers from a mental condition and has been seeing a psychiatrist for the past decade. In an interview with Alyssa's boyfriend at the time of her disappearance, he stated that Michael Turney would speak with him in private and say Alyssa was seeing other males in an apparent attempt to cause them to break up. Investigators have not been able to locate any other romantic interests in Alyssa's life. Alyssa's boyfriend stated that he last saw her on the day she disappeared, when she stopped in his woodshop class at Paradise Valley High School and said she was being pulled out of school early by her stepfather. She said that she would talk to him later. John never heard from or saw Alyssa again. He does not believe she would run away without telling him. Alyssa's boyfriend also told this investigator a few months before Alyssa's disappearance that she told him that her stepfather had tried something with her. Alyssa was emotional and distraught when she disclosed this. Therefore, he took this to mean that her stepfather made sexual advances towards Alyssa. Because she was so upset, he did not press her for details. Michael Roy Turney himself called Child Protective Services twice in May of 2000. He wanted the agency to know that Alyssa was threatening to call CPS and say her stepfather was molesting her in an attempt to force him to buy her a truck. CPS never received any calls from Alyssa and no further investigation was completed. The ex-boyfriend of Rhett Turney called Phoenix Police in March of 2008 and said that Rhett Turney, who is Michael Roy Turney's oldest son, expressed his belief that his father was molesting Alyssa and had murdered her. It should be noted that Rhett Turney himself denied making these statements. In an interview with Sarah Turney, she stated that most of her sister's clothing and jewelry were left behind on the day she disappeared. She noticed the contents of her backpack had been dumped on the floor and the backpack was missing. Sarah found the note that was supposedly left behind by Alyssa and questioned the authenticity. In particular, she stated that Alyssa did not sign her name the way it appeared on the note. Other family members have also questioned the note. Many of Alyssa's family members have been interviewed in reference to her disappearance. Almost all of them believe Alyssa is deceased. There is disagreement on whether or not she would have run away from home. Almost all of them, however, admit that there is great animosity between Alyssa and her stepfather. In 2002, Michael Turney moved directly across the street. He and Sarah Turney have resided there since then. In September of 2008, detectives went to the Turney household in order to go through Alyssa's belongings and obtain the note which was supposedly left by Alyssa. Detectives were not allowed to search the house and were given a photocopy of the note. Shortly after that visit, Michael Turney has refused to cooperate with the investigation. He is the only member of the Turney family to not cooperate with the police investigation or submit to an interview. In previous statements to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and the Phoenix Police, Michael Turney has stated that Alyssa suffered from attention deficit disorder, and this would explain her impulsivity to run away. However, 
detectives have been unable to find any official medical diagnosis of this condition. In summary, Michael Turney has asserted that Alyssa Turney ran away between the hours of 1 p.m. and 5 p.m. A note supposedly from her was found stating that she was going to California. At the time of Alyssa's disappearance, there was video surveillance on the exterior and interior of the home. While it is possible that Alyssa could have avoided the security camera angles, it is unknown why she would do this when she was plainly running away and leaving behind a note. Michael Turney said that he spoke to his neighbors after Alyssa's disappearance, and none of them saw her leave the house that day. At the time of Alyssa's disappearance, she had $1,860 in her bank account. This was not accessed. If she indeed ran away to California, it is unknown why she would not remove this large amount of cash from her account. She did not tell her boyfriend, family, or friends of any plans to run away. Very little of her personal property was missing. She left her jewelry and personal effects behind. Additionally, Alyssa did not take a vehicle which was at the residence when she went missing. Given these facts, it appears that Alyssa likely did not leave the house and was a victim of foul play inside. Consequently, it is necessary for the detectives to investigate this home as a potential crime scene. During a canvas of the neighborhood in September of 2008, the current resident of Turney's old home was contacted. They expressed hostility towards police and would not allow them to access the house. Michael Turney has video surveillance of his property at the time of Alyssa's disappearance, but this has never been provided to investigators. This video would likely show potential suspects and help ascertain what happened to Alyssa on the day of her disappearance. After interviewing numerous friends, family members, co-workers, and acquaintances, and following every possible lead of this case, investigators have come to a dead end. All investigative efforts have failed to discover any person who talked to or saw Alyssa Turney after she was taken out of school by her stepfather. With the exception of Michael Turney, every person contacted has been willing to be interviewed or do whatever it is necessary to assist in finding Alyssa. Furthermore, investigators have tried on several occasions to talk to Michael Turney in order to seek his cooperation in resolving this case. To this day, for reasons unknown, Michael Turney has refused to cooperate with investigators. In the driveway of the home, there is a white 2003 GMC pickup registered to Michael Roy Turney. The vehicle has a matching white camper shell over the pickup bed. Through the window, there are plainly visible duffel bags and camping equipment which may contain items removed from the home. Located in the enclosed backyard, there is a tan 1993 Chevrolet van registered to Michael Turney. Through the glass of the van, there are blue and green tubs covered with tarps. These storage devices may contain items removed from the home. Three storage sheds are also enclosed in the backyard. It is respectfully requested that the vehicles and storage sheds be added to this search warrant as they may contain items of evidence sought in connection to this investigation. And the search warrant is signed by Detective William Anderson as well as a judge, justice of the peace, or magistrate. This episode of Voices for Justice is sponsored by June's Journey. If you're looking for your next mobile game to get lost in, I absolutely recommend June's Journey. If you haven't heard of June's Journey, it's a hidden object puzzle game. You play as June Parker, and you're on a quest to solve your sister's murder. You get to gather the clues and decipher them, all while immersing yourself in some pretty cool gameplay. And of course, you can customize your gameplay experience with a lot of in-game features and options. One of my favorite parts is decorating my very own luxurious island estate. I kind of bounce between finding the clues and going back and just having fun decorating. And I love a good challenge. Outside of finding the clues, you can also join a detective club. 
You can even play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. So whether you're just trying to solve the mystery, you want to do some decorating, or you want to play with other players, June's Journey really does have it all. Escape into a world of mystery. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. And with their search warrant in hand, the Phoenix Police Department went to our home to detain my father and search for evidence of foul play in Alyssa's disappearance. But first, they set up surveillance. And I found out a few years ago that my friend Keith remembers being at our home the night before and morning of the raid. Why I feel compelled to include this is because if Keith remembers seeing surveillance as just a 20-year-old kid with no law enforcement background, I find it hard to believe that my father didn't notice it too. Here's what Keith remembers seeing. And of course, one of the biggest reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast is because I found out a few years ago um, that you spent the night at my house the night before the raid. Mm -hmm. um, so can you tell me what you remember about that? Um, so, I mean, we were hanging out, we were drinking, um, I mean, that was pretty much your dad's mentality was we could do whatever we wanted, we just stayed in your room, you know, and we were drinking, having a good time, and then you had told, you had school the next day, and, um, I had to go do something, and I lived on the other side of town, like 45 minutes away, so I left early in the morning. Yeah, like I said, it was pretty much a normal night hanging out or whatever, and then I slept on the couch, and then in the morning, um, I think I woke up before you guys. I went out back, smoked a cigarette, and then when I came in, I don't know if you were getting ready, but I didn't see you that morning. I only saw your boyfriend, and I was kind of like, all right, I'm going to get out of here, you know, and I left, and as I was leaving and getting into my truck, I noticed that across the street, that um, there was literally a guy sitting in like a uh, like a your stereotypical like surveillance van, um, no labels on it, nothing like that. And he looked right at me and put his two fingers up to his ear, his right ear, like they do in the movies, and stared right at me. And I could tell he was either giving a description or whatever, but he was talking about me. And I remember I started driving away and I called and I said, Hey, just to be, you know, just a heads up, like someone's house is going to get raided in the neighborhood because there's a bunch of cops out here and they're, you know, being real vigilant. Like I said, I don't know if my father knew that the police were watching at that moment, but remember he complained about being watched by the police previously. So again, I'm inclined to think that he was on high alert and possibly knew this was coming which makes what they found on him even more terrifying. The report reads, On December 11, 2008, at 6 a.m., a surveillance was set up on Michael Turney's residence. The purpose of the surveillance was to serve Michael Turney with a court order to obtain identifying characteristics from Michael Turney. The listed officers had received information from Sergeant Chapman that Michael Turney owned several firearms, a ballistic vest, and possible explosives. 
Sergeant Chapman also stated that Turney had exhibited paranoia and hostility towards police officers. Therefore, it was decided for officer safety reasons that Michael Turney would be served with the court order when he exited his residence, so that Turney would not have access to his weapons. At about 10.40 a.m., Michael Turney exited his residence and walked out to his mailbox in front of his house to retrieve his mail. The officers then drove up to Michael Turney as he was standing in his driveway and made contact with him. Michael Turney was detained without incident. Although, it should be noted that officers removed two handguns and seven loaded magazines from Michael Turney, as the firearms were concealed from our sight, hidden underneath his leather jacket. He was then placed in the rear seat of the patrol vehicle to await the arrival of investigating detectives. While waiting for the detectives, Michael Turney complained of chest pains. Phoenix Fire paramedics were called out to administer first aid. A shift rescue 27 and engine 37 responded and evaluated Michael Turney's condition. Phoenix Fire paramedics advised that Turney's vitals were okay, but due to Turney requesting to see a doctor, he was transported to Paradise Valley Hospital. The investigating detectives arrived on the scene and requested that we serve a search warrant at Turney's residence. At 11.33 a.m., under the direction of Sergeant Moreland, I knocked and announced out with purpose with no response at the front door. We then opened the screen door, which was unlocked, and entered the residence as the front door was standing wide open. We cleared the residence. No other occupants were located inside except for Turney's two dogs. The scene was turned over to Sergeant Chapman, along with entry tape by Sergeant Moreland, to be impounded as evidence. And this is about when I got to the scene. After that meeting, my head was obviously spinning, but I didn't think about what I was just told. I didn't sit and analyze that Alyssa had been taken out of school early that day, or that she was being sexually abused. I went into survival mode. And like I told the detectives, I had to call my brothers. First, I called Mike. No answer. Next, I called John. And thank goodness he answered. I told him what was happening and begged him to go to our house and get the dogs out. And then we got in my car, and I raced down the freeway at speeds I probably haven't beat to this day. When I turned the corner to my block, it was filled with what I would later realize were unmarked police cars. So I parked at the very end of the street where I could find an empty spot and began walking toward my house. As I approached it, I began to shake, and I saw at least 10 officers of assorted uniform and civilian clothing in my driveway. As I approached, I could swear that they all looked up at me in unison, not one smile among the bunch. I believe I just said, I live here. They informed me that I would not be able to return to my home that night, and they would allow me to collect some items in a moment. So I sat on the curb by my neighbor's house, smoked my boyfriend's cigarettes, and waited. I saw the Mobile Activity Command Van, or MAC Van, as described by Detective Summershoe in our meeting. My gaze switched between the officers surrounding my home and the van. I was shaking and trying not to cry. I was worried about my dogs, my dad, school, my life, my future. I was worried about everything all at once. I watched the officers joke and laugh and get pizza delivered to the van as lunchtime was approaching. It felt so unreal that life had the audacity to continue in such a routine way while my world was falling apart right in front of me. But eventually my brother John arrived, and quickly after, so did Detective Summershoe. He and another detective escorted me and John into the house to retrieve our dogs and grab items I needed for the night. But only two of our three dogs were accounted for. 
John took the two that we found and went to our brother Mike's house. I stayed behind and asked the officer if he had seen a small white dog. The officer stared at me with no expression and informed me that there was no third dog. Now, I like to think that I had stayed relatively cool, calm, and collected given the circumstances, but this is when I absolutely lost it. Tears streaming down my face, I began yelling at the officer. I can't tell you exactly what I said verbatim, but I'm pretty sure it was something along the lines of, what do you mean there was no dog? You can't just do this to people. You ruined my entire life and now you're telling me my dog doesn't exist? What's your badge number? And I'm sure I threatened to sue the police department into oblivion, all in the name of my dog. But I had limited time in the house and had to grab what I needed for the night, so I began putting items into a bag. Dog food for the dog that didn't exist, clothing, toiletries, etc. What I didn't know was that they were watching everything I put into my bag. And I happened to be on my period, so I put tampons in my bag, but apparently the officer didn't see, and quickly asked, what did you just put into your bag? My response was to yell, tampons, and dump out my entire bag on the couch for them to search. Although I'm not proud of the way I acted towards officers when confronted with the fact that my dog was missing, had they just acknowledged that my dog even existed in the first place, as opposed to treating me like an insane person, I imagine things would have happened differently. But after being escorted through my home and having my items searched, I left my house and began driving around my neighborhood looking for my dog. But then I realized that I forgot to grab his microchip information. So I drove back towards my house, but by that time, the entire street had been blocked off with crime scene tape. So I stood at the end of my street and asked an officer if I could re-enter the house to grab the information or if they were able to grab it for me. My requests were denied. So I stood at the police tape, obnoxiously screaming my dog's name, thinking to myself that I didn't care if I ever saw my father again, as long as I got to see my dog. And as I stood there crying, my dog came out from the neighbor's bush about 20 feet from where I was standing and ran to me. He was shaking, and I held him sobbing in the middle of the street. With a lot of sass, I informed the officer that I found the dog that never existed and retreated to my brother Mike's house for the night. But while I was having a meltdown over my dog, the detectives continued to search the home. The police report continues. It should be noted that there were approximately five exterior surveillance cameras at various places on the house. These were hooked up to surveillance monitors inside the house, one in the living room and one in Mike Turney's bedroom. Once inside the house, it was discovered that there were vehicles and exterior sheds on the property, which contained large amounts of property. Detective Anderson then offered an addendum to the warrant for these areas. Forensic psychologists Aaron Spears and Stephen Pitt, who had been consulting on the case, were escorted through the property by Sergeant Chapman and I. Detective Olson then began documenting firearm evidence found in the residence. Detective Chapman and Bruja assisted him. At approximately 2.10 p.m., Detective Chapman located what appeared to be a number of improvised explosive devices in Mike Turney's bedroom. At approximately 2.10 p.m., Detective Champion located what appeared to be a number of improvised explosive devices in Mike Turney's bedroom. Because of this discovery, all personnel were ordered out of the residence and the perimeter was extended outward to a safe distance. The Phoenix Bomb Squad was contacted and mobilized to respond. Detective Anderson then authored another addendum to the warrant to cover found explosives and weapon violations. 
Efforts were then made to evacuate the neighborhood to a safe location while Phoenix Bomb Squad attempted to secure the various IEDs. The Phoenix Bomb Squad arrived and was briefed. They made entry into the Turney House at approximately 3.40 p.m. The FBI and ATF were contacted and sent agents to the scene. It was at this time that my father began the process of giving DNA and handwriting samples. That report reads, On December 10, 2008, I was contacted by Sergeant Chapman of the missing persons detail. He asked me to assist with an investigation his squad was conducting. A court order to obtain identifying evidence from a Michael Turney had been obtained. The order authorized investigators to obtain photographs, fingerprints, saliva samples, and handwriting samples. On December 11, 2008, at approximately 2 p.m., I was notified by Sergeant Chapman that a patrol officer was transporting Turney to police headquarters. I agreed to meet him at the second floor interview room area. Turney had handcuffs on both wrists. His hands were in front of his body. It was requested that Turney go into interview room 2. He immediately asked to use the restroom. Turney was given access to a restroom. He was accompanied by an officer. The two returned minutes later. In interview room two, the handcuffs were removed from Turney. He sat at a table in the room. I sat across from him. I first identified myself to Turney. I also introduced Detectives Bennett and Taylor, who were also in the room. I explained that the three of us had been asked to assist detectives who were conducting an investigation involving him. Our knowledge about his possible involvement and details were minimal. I explained we had been specifically asked to serve the order for identifying evidence. I showed Turney the order and advised him that he would be getting a copy. Turney was cooperative and agreed to provide the samples asked for. He was told that Detective Taylor would first obtain a handwriting sample. Detective Bennett would then obtain the remaining items. Detective Taylor began having Turney write various words and or statements. Detective Bennett remained in the room to observe. I left the interview room at that time. After Detective Taylor was finished, Detective Bennett obtained saliva samples from Turney. Detective Bennett then took Turney to the records bureau located across the hall from the interview room. At this location, Turney was photographed and his prints obtained. At about 5.20 p.m., I went to the records bureau. Turney, who was being printed, asked for a drink. I returned with a bottle of water. This was given to Turney. He also said that he needed to eat regularly or he would get sick. At approximately 4.15 p.m., Detective Bennett returned Turney to the interview room. Detective Bennett left to obtain food for Turney. I remained in the interview room. Turney asked if he was going to be able to leave. I explained to him that something had apparently been found in his home and that an investigator wanted to speak with him about it. Turney then said something like, let me see what secrets I have up there. And then he went on to explain that he had been experimenting with making silencers. At one point, he called the ATF about this. He thought he had been told that they needed to be registered only after they were finished. He was not clear if he had finished the silencers. Turney also told me that he needs medications that are in his home. These were currently in a fireproof box in his bedroom. During this time, Detective Bennett returned. Turney was given a sandwich he had requested. We left the interview room at that time. The activity in the room was continuously monitored. At approximately 5.45 p.m., Detective Summershoe entered the interview room. This is where this report ends, and Detective Summershoe's report about this next interview begins. On December 11, 2008, I responded to an order to interview Michael Turney in reference to this investigation. 
I had just left his address where I had been informed that multiple improvised explosive devices had been located, as well as a large collection of weapons. The bomb squad was still conducting their search and a large number of residents had been evacuated. Michael Turney had been originally taken into custody in reference to a court order for identifying evidence. However, due to the subsequent discovery of the explosive devices and silencers, he was now in custody for those charges. I introduced myself and Michael said that he remembered me. I told him I was going to talk about what we found in his house. Michael then said, My house is a mess. There's stuff in there from my children, from other people. I haven't cleaned it up. Some garbage I needed to dispose of. I've got a van I've just got to get rid of, or I was trying to. And it needed to be cleaned up. I just got it running again. Some projects I worked on that didn't work out. I I thought at one time I'd be able to keep myself busy going to gun shows. Just a lot of stuff that's been sitting around for years. There's a bunch of stuff that needs to be cleaned up. That's why I didn't want you guys coming to my house. Not because I had anything. My house is just a mess. It's embarrassing and shameful. I thought I'd only have to live there five more months, then Sarah would move away and I would live in a trailer or go homeless. I told Michael that I had spoken to Sarah and his son, Michael Jr., and they were worried about him. I told him they gave me their phone numbers and I would make sure that he had them. At 5.47 p.m., I read Michael his Miranda warnings from a standard Phoenix Police Miranda rights warning card. I asked Michael if he understood his rights. He said, yeah, can I have an attorney? I told Michael I wouldn't ask him further questions about the case. I explained to Michael that we had served a search warrant on his house. Michael asked for his medication, and I explained that the bomb squad was in his house and I couldn't retrieve his medication. In reference to the warrant, Michael said it was a blanket search warrant just to get me on something. I explained we were looking for specific things. Michael asked, does it pertain to Alyssa? I told him that was what I was investigating. Michael said, you know, this is as far as you guys have gone. Again, if you're going to do a search warrant based on because I sent you a certified letter and a doctor's notice, that's a tough search warrant to stick with. It's a blanket thing to come into people's houses. I gave Michael his son and daughter's phone numbers. I advised him that I would tell him the specific charges he was facing as soon as I knew. I told Michael my goal was to find Alyssa. Michael stated, I figured the moment the raid took place, my life is over, so it doesn't really matter. I began to exit the room and told Michael I wished him good luck. He said, It's definitely an appealable case. The warrant won't hold up in court. I left the interview room and waited for further information from Sergeant Chapman at the scene on what charges Michael would be facing. I escorted Michael to the bathroom. Sergeant Chapman called me and advised me that Michael would be facing 22 counts of misconduct involving weapons. It should be noted that this was revised. Once it was decided that the ATF would be taking on the charges, they would be placing a hold on Michael. The revised charging was two counts of misconduct involving weapons. I again took Michael to use the bathroom. Upon our return, I asked Michael if he wanted to know the charges. He said he did, and I told him. Michael then began speaking without me asking him questions. The following is his statements as I heard them. Michael Turney stated, My overall plan was to make a big display in front of the local 640. Mail off some stuff. I was going to mail it to the news and then kill myself. And that's not going to happen now, but I was going to wait until Sarah left home. So I can tell you right off the bat, you having read me my rights, and that was what I wanted to do to bring attention to Alyssa, because I still think they killed her, or had something to do with it. Whether you want to believe it or think I'm some heinous person, I loved Alyssa a lot, and I worked her too hard. 
I don't do stuff like that. Not to my daughter. She's very important to me, and she needs to be redeemed. We've had a lot of shit happen in our life. My wife's death was never closed. My sister's death was interfered with by the government, needing closure for that shit, and then Alyssa's situation. Whether you guys like it or not, I was fighting hard for your department. Not your department. I don't know if you're a part of that. To get them to put that shit into NCIC, because that's all I really ever expected you guys to do at that level. But I would have liked a little deeper investigation into the IBEW. If that's just paranoid schizophrenia, then you know, my doctor tried to get me to quit thinking about it, and I tried to. But you know, when you have psychiatric problems... Detective Summershoe then asks, are you feeling suicidal now? And my father responds, no, there's no need to. I mean, you know... And Summershoe responds, I mean, you just told me that you were planning to blow yourself up. My father goes on to say, well, that's what the plan was after Sarah left. But what's the sense now? It's not going to bring any attention to anything. If I'm going to forfeit my life, I'm not just going to fucking do it to make the IBEW happy. Fuckers told me to kill myself several times, tried a few times. It doesn't really matter. I mean, nothing really matters now. I had some really crazy plans back in 2003 when I first believed they had killed her, and I just didn't dispose of the shit that I had. There was only one bag in there that had any meaning to it, and that was the one that was going to set the fire make a little bit of fireworks, and then I was going to blow my fucking head off, because I'm really tired of my life. I don't want to think about the stuff that I did that brought hell down on Alyssa. I don't want to think about any of that stuff. I don't have to worry about Sarah right now. I don't think they'll do anything to her, but it would be nice if you guys would check on her occasionally. I don't see any reason for them to... Detective Summershoe says, Sarah isn't facing any charges. She's got a bright future. She seems to be very smart. And my father goes on to say... I just need to get the message to her for her to move on with her life and forget about me because I'm gone. Not that I'm going to kill myself. I don't expect to get out of anything too soon. I'm not going to try to get out of that shit. I would just prefer to get a few of these psychiatrists together, all six of them, to get them together and do what they should do to just commit me, put me in some place. I've got a lot of medical problems wrong with me and that's not going to be taken care of in jail. It's a bad state to ask for that shit because we don't look at psychiatry. Detective Summershoe asks, You've never been booked into jail? And my father responds, I've never been booked for anything. I've gotten seven speeding tickets. I've gotten no prior criminals or anything. There was never any intent to kill anyone but myself. In 2003, there were some really serious thoughts, but again, I wouldn't do that to Sarah. She's lived without her mother since she was four and a half. And when she came, so many times checking to see if I was just still there, I can't tell you how many times I thought about running away. In fact, when I went to California in 2007, I almost didn't come back, but I started feeling guilty. Michael Turney continued to talk for some time. He later made the statement, I'm glad this is over with so I don't have to worry about that shit anymore. Booking paperwork was completed by Detective Anderson and Michael was then transported to the 4th Avenue jail by patrol officers. But my family and I didn't know what was going on. We knew that our father had been taken in for questioning and DNA and handwriting samples, but we couldn't understand what was taking so long. It wasn't until we saw the evening news that we heard that they had evacuated the neighborhood. And then investigators say they removed 26 homemade pipe bombs, three incendiary devices, two unregistered silencers, and 19 high-caliber assault-style firearms. They said it was the largest explosive seizure in Arizona history. I just felt numb. 
I remember sitting in my brother Mike's backyard, smoking a cigarette and drinking something alcoholic. And my brother John turned to me and said, Do you think Dad could have done something to Alyssa? But the truth was, I didn't. I really didn't. And then, my father called. My brother Mike answered the phone and immediately handed it to me. There was no question as to who he would speak to first. They knew I needed to talk to him. All I remember is bursting into tears and him trying to explain to me how much money he needed for bail. It was about everything I had saved up for college, and I was ready to give it to him. But before we could get to a bail bondsman, the news announced that his bail had been dramatically increased. The next day, the police continued their search of the home, as well as the van in our backyard. That report reads, On December 12, 2008, officers from the Phoenix Police Department served a search warrant on the home of Michael Turney. The warrant was authored to obtain evidence in relation to a missing person now believed to have been the victim of a homicide. During the search of the property, officers observed multiple improvised explosives. For this reason, in the safety of the neighborhood, an evacuation was ordered. To assist in the removal of the explosives, members of the Phoenix Bomb Unit were requested. The bomb unit identified and removed several explosives, including a tan Chevrolet van. The van itself was rigged to perform as an explosive device. The van was observed with several propane tanks in the cargo area and a complex tubing system along with an ignition device. The van also had a large brick located in the driver's compartment, likely to hold the throttle down while the driver bailed out. On that same day, they served the search warrant for the home Alyssa was last seen in directly across the street. That report reads, On December 12, 2008, at 6 p.m., crime scene technician McMurray, Detective Olson, and I assisted the Missing Persons Bureau in reference to the investigation of Alyssa Turney. Under authority of a search warrant obtained in reference to this address and investigation, two bedrooms of the residence were processed using luminol to attempt to locate any blood evidence on the floor of these bedrooms. The carpet covering the two bedroom floors was lifted and a solution of luminol was applied to the concrete. No positive results slash indication of blood was detected on the floors. Prior to applying of the luminol to the floors, a control slash known sample of blood did react positive to the application of the luminol solution. The list of items taken from the house is seemingly never-ending. And when I began to read all of the items, I was astounded. I knew they had taken truckloads of stuff, but I didn't realize how insane the contents were. The document I created to keep track of what I considered to be odd items found in our home is 15 pages long. But the items that really stood out to me were the following. They found $6,000 in cash, a black shirt with white writing that said police, two sealed suicide letters authored by my father, one for me and one for my brother Mike, a social security card with the name Gary Wayne Morris on it, night vision binoculars, a lot of pictures of the IBEW building and people walking around it with detailed notes about conducting surveillance on those union members, a bag with a wig, face paint, and makeup in it, a bulletproof vest, a union directory from 1977, a temporary license plate for a 1992 Ford truck, a manual on two-component high-explosive mixtures, a notebook with handwriting on it with an apparent rough draft of a bomb plan, 
a book titled How to Build Flash-slash-Stun Grenades, a CD-ROM that contained multiple blank IDs for state-issued driver's licenses and other items used as identification, maps of the Prescott National Forest, the Sonoran Desert National Monument, and a map of California, all with handwritten notes. One letter addressed to someone named Alyssa Farian. Paperwork titled Time and Death Determination and Body Decomposition. A snuff film depicting a woman being raped and murdered that was edited in such a way that the murder scene was repeated several times. The official police report, along with crime scene photos of the time that my Uncle James shot his wife Donna printouts of the FBI top most wanted list, a printout from an internet site devoted to unidentified bodies, including a Jane Doe with a fractured nose, two copies of a handwritten note that said, quote, I love you, Alyssa, comma, dad. And underneath it was written, quote, I love you too. I just need time off. Tell Sarah I love her. They also find some pretty crazy home videos. The report reads, Tape 6 is a long video of various family events in 1997. Alyssa is often featured. One of the segments is her birthday party. James Turney's graduation is also recorded. The final segment of the video is Mike Turney filming. He is in Alyssa's bedroom trying to wake her up while she is lying in her bedroom. He playfully puts the family dog in the bed with her and pushes her with his foot. Alyssa seems to grow annoyed, and the last image is of her slamming her bedroom door on Mike. There is approximately a minute gap of blank tape, and the next recorded segment is a short video of bondage porn recorded off the family computer. The video shows a nude woman lying on her stomach. She has her hands and ankles bound behind her back, and she appears to be wearing a ball gag. The video is an eight-second loop where the woman struggles and grunts against her restraints. This apparently internet-downloaded video is run repeatedly and filmed. The tape then ends. Tape 7 is a series of recorded family home movies. Some segments are date-stamped, and it indicates filming in 1999. During one of those segments, Sarah is filming around the house. She appears to capture an argument between Mike Turney and Alyssa. At one point, Mike angrily turns to Alyssa and says, Do you have any money, Alyssa? Sarah appears to be turning the camera on and off, so there is no steady recording. However, during one of the recorded segments, Mike Turney can be heard yelling, You have an alternative. I can kill myself. Later in the same tape, there is a short segment where Mike Turney is filming a marijuana pipe and bong. He voices the date, March 12th, 1999. The next item is what may be a rough draft or attempt at the creation of a runaway note. Underneath this description, it states, Other writings and handwritten map are not understood at this time. Two typed letters from Dr. Matson, the psychiatrist treating Michael Roy Turney. The signatures on the two forms appear different and are questionable at best. Stationary from psychiatrist Dr. Matson. The pages are blank with the exception of the apparent signatures from Matson. Unknown as to why Michael Turney had signed stationery from his attending psychiatrist. Medieval torture museum printouts from internet search, several pages describing means slash devices of torture. Items were searched and printed on March 15, 2004. 
unknown reason why items were researched or retained. And the last, but certainly not least shocking item on my list, is multiple copies of a document titled The Story of a Madman Martyr, Lost in an Obsession for Justice and Closure. A 97-page document outlining a detailed plan to enact revenge on the Union using the weapons found in the house. In addition to the plan is a detailed story about two assassins from the Union killing Alyssa. And the story of how my father killed those two assassins. Next time on Voices for Justice. And so all of a sudden on the news, you know, me and my girl in the living room. I just got home from work and your text picture on the news. I'm like, what the hell, you know? Um, and that's how I found out, you know. Um, thinking, oh my God, you know, he killed her. And I think they felt like they were getting close to something, you know. And when when somebody told me, he said, "We, you know, we have or Anderson told me, he said we have all this circumstantial evidence, and every bit of it points to Mike." Voices for Justice is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Sarah Turney. If you want to learn more about Alyssa's story and how you can help with the case, visit justiceforalyssa.com. And if you love the show, it would really help if you gave me a rating and review in your podcast player. Thank you so much, and I'll talk to you next time.